Chapter 1 The date was June 15th of 1940. Johan had been silently memorizing it as he stared out of the window of the Polish passenger train, thinking that he could use the date as a reference with which to ground himself. He knew, even before he ever saw his destination, that he was in for a long few months. Behind him, six other soldiers were all dressed neatly in their SS Totenkampferbande uh, uniforms, the silver death's head insignia pin on their caps glistening in the bright sunlight as they laughed about a joke that Johan had missed. Johan didn't even know their names. He hadn't asked, nor had he been, nor had he been paying enough attention to their chatter to find out. To be fair, Johan had been completely silent during the entire 12-hour journey around Germany, never making any effort to interact with his rambunctious Nazi comrades. So he wasn't totally, so he wouldn't be surprised if they didn't even realize he was on the train. He had boarded the Polish train at Frankfurt an der Oder station first at noon earlier that day and they had joined him as the day progressed. Johann was no stranger to being alienated from his compatriots, though. He had joined the, he had joined the Sturmabteilung in 1933, in the middle of his medical schooling. When he was shipped off to Katz at Dachau for five weeks, he made no friends within the barbed wire which separated the prison from the rest of the town of Dachau. Ironically, Johann was able to connect with the prisoners of the camp much more easily than his fellow SA and SS men and the few relations he had formed had all been with the political prisoners he had met, none of whom he had ever seen again. When his five weeks of basic training were over and he returned to his studies, he developed a reputation for his cold demeanor and unpredictability. Johann intentionally tried to push everyone around him away, knowing that he wasn't able to make friends. His purposeful distantness meant that the other students often spoke very badly of him, though never to his face. He normally just heard rumors in passing, after they had spread, but they affected him all the same. Oftentimes, Johann found himself feeling insulted and hurt by the accusations that he was, for all intents and purposes, a sadistic criminal, but he tried to hide it all the same. In Johann's defense, the rumors had spread far, and to places he wouldn't have wished them to. Specifically, the man who was at the time charged with criminal offenses within the Nazi party itself had gotten wind of the falsified story that Johann had been behind the death of one of his colleagues in his medical school in Nuremberg. It was true that a 26-year-old student had died, but it was already diagnosed as a case of heart failure, not a murder. The charges had been dropped, but Johann's superiors had been wary of the student ever since. Despite his reputation, he was one of the few SA men that was admitted into the SS as a doctor. This was a very fortunate turn of events for him. The SA had been causing all kinds of problems for the NSDAP National Socialist Party, so they were almost all killed or disbanded in June of 1934, and were replaced by the more controlled and more sinister SS or Schutzstaffel. Johann made no meaningful relationships with anyone until 1935, and that was in a very unexpected place. Sometime in the middle of the year, Johann had been on his way to his Nuremberg flat and had caught his teenager pickpocketing him. The kid looked to be starving, but stealing was still a cause to be sent to Dachau, and Johann wasn't keen on sending the kid to such an uncertain future. Instead, he had taken him home with him, given him some food and money, and sent him home with a warning not to get caught next time. It wasn't that Johann wanted to allow the team to steal from him, but he didn't want the kid to starve to death either. Money was hard for everyone at the time, and the Nazi couldn't have blamed the thief. Besides, there was something notable about the crime. Johann's wallet had contained 90 marks, and only 40 were missing. The thief took less than half of what he'd had access to. Within a few days, the teen returned, to the, returned with the money, saying he couldn't accept so much money in good conscience. He had stayed for dinner with the doctor, who learned quite a bit about him during that evening. His thief's name was Dietrich, although Johann didn't get his last name. Johann was told that Dietrich's father had been shot for resisting arrest after allowing Jews to work under him and his mother had subsequently been fired from her job as a journalist. Dietrich had been stealing to support his family, because his mother went into a deep depression and wouldn't do it herself. In Johann's judgment, there was more to the story than Dietrich had said, but he seemed very nice. For a petty street criminal, Dietrich was very polite and courteous, if a bit nervous. He had confessed to Johann that he was still halfway expecting to be given to the Gestapo, and Johann had assured him that he was not.
In fact, Johann had ended up sheltering Dietrich for several months until he received his first assignment at Katzitz-Sachsenhausen. He had told Dietrich the day he was to leave and left a lot of the food and supplies that he had stocked up for him in the flat with, for Dietrich. He even offered to continue paying the rent for him to live there, but Dietrich had politely refused, saying he would return to his mother's house instead. Johann left the for the train to Sachsenhausen and hadn't seen Dietrich since. His transfer to Sachsenhausen had occurred in early July of 1936. Johann had been one of the first transports to the camp and had been given guard duties as opposed to the medical duties he'd been expecting. Specifically, he was given the night watch in a guard tower, shooting at any prisoners that unwittingly crossed into the neutral zone around the perimeter of camp. The rules to the job were very simple. If a prisoner stepped onto the gravel, they were shot at with lethal intent. Johann hated the job he'd been given, but he did it well. He earned himself a reputation for being merciless, killing every prisoner he shot at, but he had a specific reason for that. He didn't want to cause anyone any unnecessary pain. The guard was always careful to kill any of his targets instantly, or almost instantly, if that wasn't possible. Despite being armed with a mounted machine gun, he rarely had to shoot more than two bullets at a time. The strangest thing about the shootings from the tower was that Johann never remembered pulling the trigger. It was almost as though he'd zoned out in his own thoughts, and when he focused, there would be a body laying on the gravel. As a general rule, prisoners weren't supposed to be out of their barracks at night, so it was seldom that Johann had friendly interactions with prisoners, and he often wondered if they spread rumors about him as his own comrades did. As the SS were so fond of, they started spreading some nasty rumors about Johann within mere days of his arrival. Johann was convinced that the guilty guards had heard of him before he was in the camp, because they were along the same lines as the first rumors that he'd heard in his medical school, but more gruesome in nature. The most rampant rumor that Johann heard was that he performed vivisections without anesthesia, in layman's terms, meaning he dissected people alive. That specific rumor spread to the prisoners. Johann had heard at least twice when a guard would say something to the effect of, you'd best follow your orders before I give you to Kremer and he cuts you open in the infirmary. That didn't mean that Johann had no friends, though. In the four years that he was posted at Sachsenhausen, he made a total of four friends within the SS, all of whom were his roommates. Klaus Mausen lived in the bunk directly below Johann and was one of his closer friends. Despite being an executioner by title, Mausen was rather polite to Johann, and he approached the doctor a week after they arrived. Johann was rather surprised to learn that his bunkmate was also a licensed physician, and one who hated his job severely. It was easy for Johann to relate to him, and Klaus's calm demeanor meant that he and Johann got along perfectly from the day they met. Egan Richter and Eugen Zimmermann were, the were in the next set of bunks over. Egan had been raised in Munich under Nazi ideology, and Eugen had been raised as an anti-Nazi in a small town called Drogen, but they had become best friends almost upon arrival. Once Klaus and Johann were friends, the two guards, which Johann began referring to as the E-team, quickly came around as well. Their abundant energy and rambunctious tendencies kept Johann at a reasonable distance, since he could never keep up with them in activities or conversations, but he could admit that they were fun to watch. The last was a latecomer to the camp, arriving almost a year after Johann and his three compatriots. Rudolf Stein was a very reserved doctor, someone who stuck to himself and didn't cause anyone any troubles, but it was barely possible for him to stay introverted with the E-team as his roommates. They befriended him in days, followed swiftly by Klaus. Johann took the longest, but eventually was able to befriend him as well, even despite the terrible stories that circulated through camp around about him. Johann had also made a few friends among the prisoners that he saw working on or roaming in the field. Two of these prisoners Johann had never learned the names of, but he would see them frequently at night, particularly on nights that he wasn't stationed in his guard tower. They were from different barracks, but both could be seen scurrying off to the latrines in the middle of the night. Johann only needed to, to confront them once on the matter to learn that they had terrible dysentery. While Johann couldn't do much to help them, he got some extra water into their system each time he saw them overnight. 
He started packing a backpack around that time, with water bottles, dried meats, and a small first aid kit, as well as a notebook. One day, one of those prisoners collapsed during work and was shot for it. Only a few days later did the other suffer the same fate. The only prisoner that Johann interacted with directly that circumstance allowed Johann to remain friends with was named Otto Bergman, IDN D145213. Bergman had approached the neutral zone at night while Johann was on watch, seemingly looking for something in the gravel. Johann was watching him from in the watchtower, 30 meters down the fence, but Bergman never stepped on the gravel, so Johann held his fire and simply watched him as he searched through the gray granite chunks. Only when Bergman had drawn even with Johann did he seem to realize he was there, but Johann knew instantly when he'd been spotted. The prisoner had frozen, staring up at the guard in his watchtower with an expression akin to a deer caught in headlights, and Johann stared down at him in response. Bergman didn't try to run. If his frail appearance was any sort of indicator, he probably wasn't able to. Johann had decided to talk to this emaciated ghost of a prisoner. What are you looking for out there? The prisoner had stared at Johann uncomprehendingly for a few seconds before answering that his, that his compatriot had been shot during the day, and he was looking for his dog tag. Bergman explained that the dog tags belonged to a man who had served in the First World War on Germany's side, but who had not taken to the Nazi ideology and had been detained for it. The guard had been as, as sarcastic as he could manage when he told the prisoner to step out on the gravel and find it, but Bergman had politely declined the offer, as Johann had hoped he would. The prisoner then retreated back to his barracks, lucky that Johann had decided not to shoot him despite the fact that he shouldn't have been out in the field at night in the first place. Once the prisoner had left, Johann came down from his tower and looked for, the, looked for the small metal disc and chain, which he located near the fence. He picked it up and put it in his pocket with a plan to return it. The next day, he had asked if Mausen, whom he already knew he could trust with the care of prisoners, had a special holding place for prisoners he was scheduled to execute, and he learned that the executioner had a group of cells in the bunkers specifically for that purpose. Johann asked if he would be willing to keep a prisoner there for a few hours the following day. The executioner was skeptical, but agreed when Johann reminded him that he would not have to kill the prisoner. The guard told Mausen the number of the, number of the prisoner, and Mausen agreed to collect him at roll call that evening. Johann had been on watch from 1800 to 0600, but he stopped by the bunker on his way back to his barracks. No amount of exhaustion or drowsiness could have kept Johann from such an important task. The bunker was Sachsenhausen's prison for inmates who needed to be isolated or interrogated. It doubled as a building for executions and tortures of all sorts, and Johann had always avoided the place. However, he made his way to the bunker with every intention of bringing Bergman back to his ba barracks safely afterwards, so that neither of them would need to be there for longer than necessary. It didn't take long to find Mausen's cells in the basement of the building. It was cold and damp, with limited lighting and no furnishings in the cell save for a small latrine in the corner. Most of the cells, Johann passed... Pa most of the cells Johann passed contained multiple prisoners, each staring out of the barred door with eyes that betrayed their anxiety and desperation. It took the guard a lot of self-control to avoid reacting to them, and instead, he proceeded to mouse cells in silence. The executioner had a total of four cells to his name, though only two were in use. Bergman was in the first cell, seeming less vacant in his expression than the prisoner he was roomed with. The door had a lock on it which required a key, so Johann went looking for his comrade to be allowed to take Bergman. Mausen was in the building, resting for a second after a long watch, and he was more than happy to escort Johann back to the cell to release Bergman. Of course, the prisoner didn't know he was being released. He was very talkative, and the, way outside of the, and the walk outside of the building was filled with questions from the prisoner. Where was he being taken? What was going to happen to him? What had he done to warrant being killed? All his questions remained unanswered, since the guards both told him to shut up and he fell silent thereafter. Mausen escorted the guard and his captive out of the building, leaving Johann to walk him back to his barrack alone. The prisoner started talking again along the way, 
but was cut off by Johann. Were you looking for something? Johann's question was clearly rhetorical as he produced the dog tag from his pocket and held it up for Bergman to see. Bergman stared at the little piece of metal which hung from Johann's fingers on its dull silver bead chain, suddenly silent. Johann wondered what he was thinking as he stared at the dog tags. The prisoner certainly didn't seem keen on taking them from Johann, but there was an amount of interest in his eyes that showed he really wanted the tags. After a long pause, Johann had offered them to Bergman, who took them in silence. There was a tension to his shoulders that gave Johann the impression that he was expecting something to happen, but nothing did. Johann resumed walking, motioning Bergman to follow him. What's your name? The prisoner finally found his voice at that, though he seemed much more uneasy. Otto Bergman, sir. Johann nodded. How old are you, Otto? Twenty, sir. The guard inclined his head at that, but stopped talking. He returned the prisoner to his barrack in silence, but that was not the last time he saw the prisoner. Each time Johan had a watch in the daylight, he would see Bergman in the, working in the field, but he didn't see him at night until the prisoner returned a month after Johan had returned the tags to him. The weather had dropped significantly, with snow drifting from, drifting from the low clouds above, and Johan was tucked warmly into his fleece-lined coat as he watched the prisoner approach. At first, he didn't recognize the prisoner that was approaching the strip of gravel. Bergman had lost a decent amount of weight since the last time Johan saw him, and his body language was slouched over. He almost seemed too weak to walk, though perhaps the cold weather and the frigid moisture of the snow had made his feet numb and caused him to stumble every few steps. It wasn't until he was at the edge of the gravel that Johan recognized him. Bergman had become so starved and so cold that he wasn't thinking very well and had decided that being dead was preferable to starving to death. Suicides weren't horribly uncommon in the camp, but Johan had never actually witnessed a prisoner as they tried to kill themselves, let alone been the one expected to fire the shot that killed them. When Bergman stepped onto the gravel, Johan didn't shoot, instead shouting at him, HALT! Bergman recognized his voice and looked up at him, seeming surprised. Johan noticed that he stepped back off of the gravel, but he still swung his gun around to aim in his direction. What the hell are you doing? Bergman didn't answer at first, glancing toward the fence across the gravel. At long length, he did speak, stammering out a response that, he, that Johan knew immediately was less than truthful. It is warmer by the fence, sir. Go back to your barracks where you belong. The prisoner didn't seem keen to listen to the command but Johan still didn't shoot him. After all, the temperature was so low outside that Johan couldn't really blame the prisoner for wanting to move around to keep his body temperature up, and it was equally understandable if he would have rather allowed himself to be electrocuted rather than executed. Have you got a damn death wish? Johan sounded much more upset than he actually was, having become good at acting in the few years prior. Go back to your barracks! Otto backed away, obviously anxious, but his gaze flicked back to the neutral zone as he continued to hesitate. The prisoner hesitated a few beats too long, because another guard came along the fence just then, their dark-furred German shepherd at their heels. Johann knew the guard, at least. It was Egon Richter of the E-Team. Johann, fam Johann was familiar with his dog as well. The dog was almost as harmless as Egan was. Of course, Bergman didn't know that, and he froze at the edge of the neutral zone, tense to run out if the, onto it if the dog attacked him. The dog did no such thing, though she did start barking as she'd been trained to do if she saw or smelled a prisoner out after dark. Egan took Bergman into custody, and Johann didn't expect to see him again. When Johann received his transfer summons on June, June 12th of 1940, he received the news that IDN 145-213 was going with him, to be used in his first experiment. The transfer had been brought about by none other than Egan Richter, who claimed that it was a suitable punishment for the prisoner. Johann agreed to the arrangement, and he shipped out with his meager belongings and his isolated prisoner on the 14th bound for a town in Poland called Oswiecim, or Auschwitz in German. 
As Johann continued to stare out at the countryside as it passed, he felt a deep sense of dread for the uncertainty of his situation. He already knew that Auschwitz was a different sort of camp. It was being built as a farming camp, where Polish prisoners would be forced to work in fields growing food. Johann knew that, in practice, this was not an ideal location for a farm. It was situated in the space between the Vistula and Sola rivers, where the ground was sandy and the area nearest the rivers was primarily swampland. At that moment, that was all Johann knew of the camp, though. In general, it was meant it was built to help to hold Polish Jews and political prisoners until they could be relocated east, after the war that Hitler expected to be over by the summer of 1942 had ended. In the meantime, Johann was aware that the conditions in Auschwitz weren't any better than those in Sachsenhausen, so he knew that this was not a better situation, but a worse one. As a, plan as a train slowed to the stop on the 15th of June, 1940, the camp was still under construction. Johann watched through the window as rows upon rows of concrete foundations and partially erected brick structures came into view, followed by some buildings that were already completed. As per his reason for being summoned, Johann knew that the medical barrack was one of the completed buildings that he could see, although he couldn't tell which one. Johann was among the few SS doctors to be stationed at Auschwitz so early in its existence, and his primary for reason for being posted there was to do experiments. His specialty was psychology, but he had never performed any experiments on living humans, nor had he ever wanted to. It would work out in his favor, since, he, since his experiments would be relatively harmless, and would be in his victim's best interest as well, since being in Johann's care meant they would be given a chance to rest and recover from their time in the Katzit system. The brakes on the train screeched as they were strained, and Johann quickly slipped the book he'd been reading intermittently into his rucksack in preparation for his departure at the camp. He hastily smoothed his grey-green SS uniform as he stood up, wanting to give the illusion of being presentable after sitting on the train for the entirety of the day, and once he thought it looked neat enough, he hoisted his rucksack onto his back. Behind him, the other newcomers to the camp were doing the same, talking excitedly. Johann still wasn't listening to what they said. If anything, he was annoyed with the exuberant noise of their conversation. It was as though they had no concept of using inside voices. The train eased to a stop in front of a prisoner registration building of Auschwitz concentration camp. The station itself was little more than a strip of gravel between the, track, between the tracks and the building. Johann could easily imagine, at a later time, a line of 20 cars unloading 2,000 people onto this gravel strip, while guards stood along the edges with their frothing German shepherds at their sides, shouting orders at the soon-to-be prisoners. These innocent people, convicted of some arbitrary crime or other, would be corralled by the SS guards toward the prisoner registration building directly ahead of them. It would be a very hectic scene, and one that Johann didn't want to be a part of. Johann glanced, at the, glanced one last time through the window and saw an SS man of higher rank awaiting their arrival already. He had dark hair slicked back to reveal that his hairline was receding, and a round face that seemed similar to a university professor's somehow. He was surprisingly short. Johann would almost have to look down at him, but then Johann was rather tall anyways. The doctor allowed his six trainmates to disembark the passenger car ahead of him, and he followed them out quietly. Johann was the tallest person in the group at 6'2", so it was impossible for him to avoid attention by hiding behind his compatriots, but that certainly didn't stop Johann from trying. All seven of the new Auschwitz guards came to attention before the stout figure of a man that, stood, that Johann had seen through the window. The SS man smiled warmly at the new members of his garrison. Welcome to Auschwitz, he announced in an, authorita an authoritative voice. I am SS Obersturmbannfuhrer Rudolf Huss, the commandant of this cat. Johann stayed at attention emotionless as he allowed the realization that this stout SS man was his superior to absorb into his mind. Have all of you been briefed on your duties here in camp? The seven men all spoke in unison. Yes, sir. Yo, Hoss gave a short, curt nod that was accompanied by a smile. Good. At ease. 
The guards relaxed slightly. Johan flicked a glance at his compatriots and saw that they seemed relatively relaxed given the circumstances. If anything, his fellow guards seemed excited, apprehensive, and Johan was somewhat bothered by it, though he tried to match their body language. Hoas, on the other hand, appeared almost calculating as he looked at his new subordinates. It didn't go unnoticed by Johan that he didn't want to make eye contact with any of his guards, and he got the sense that Hoas was trying to stay purposefully distanced from them. Johan recognized this particular Nazi from Sachsenhausen, where he'd been an adjutant until a month or two before Johan's transfer. Though Johan didn't see him, didn't see him particularly frequently in Sachsenhausen, since Johan had a tendency to sleep all day and work at night, he remembered that Hoas was a calm, laid-back man who didn't go out of his way to be cruel to the prisoners he interacted with, and he seldom seemed happy to talk to his fellow SS men. "'I'm going to escort you to the guardhouse,' Hoas continued calmly, distracting Johan from his thoughts. "'It's directly across camp. Follow me.'" Hoas turned to lead them into the registration building, and the seven of them followed in a line, looking around as they walked. This building is the Prisoner Registration Building, Hoas announced as they walked through the concrete corridor. They'll receive their identification numeron, as well as their uniforms. This way, we will know who is in the camp. As Johan walked, he took notice of the few present SS in the building. There were four guards of lower ranking that Johan saw, and the highest-ranked guard was a blonde-haired, bright-eyed kid of maybe 23 years of age, with the rank of Obersturmbankjur. The blonde kids saw Johan watching him as they passed, and responded with a friendly wave and a slight smile. Johan didn't have time to respond before they passed through the doorway and left the building. They emerged at a road, and Hoas led them down the 50-meter asphalt path, talking as they walked. Behind the storage barrack to our, to our right is a gravel pit. The storage barrack is used to store clothing and glasses. One of Johan's comrades, a younger and more soft-spoken brunette guard, spoke at that. What's the gravel pit used for, sir? Hoas glanced back at them, voice even as though this, the words were spoken of a mundane task such as sweeping the floor. It's used for summary executions. We have not had to do many yet, of course, but it will prove you, uh, to be a useful incentive to follow camp rules once we have more prisoners. Johan glanced towards the, stor the storage structure, determinedly hiding his disgust with that by studying the rusty color of the bricks. I should get used to it, Johan reprimanded himself sternly. That's probably not the worst I will hear of in this camp. Just past the gravel pit, the road forked, and Hoas led his group to, on the path to the left, skirting the perimeter of the camp. The path to the right goes into camp, Hoas explained, motioning down the path that they, as they passed it. Most of the places you will be will be inside the fence, but the administrative, the administrative buildings are this way. You can explore there on your own. You'll each have a mentor to help you for the first week or two. Johan flicked a glance at Hoas, instantly on edge. After all, Johan had never gotten along well with other SS men, excepting those who lived in his immediate vicinity at Sachsenhausen. He was certainly a bit wary at the idea of having another SS guard at close proximity, proximity for a week or longer, even if that guard was a fellow doctor. Speaking of that... A rowdy new recruit piped up from the front of the line. When do we find out who our mentor is? Hoas chuckled faintly at his enthusiasm. <laughs> when you get to your post tomorrow, they will be there with you. Johan had been told to go to Block 10, to room C4, so he supposed that was where he would be meeting his own colleague. The group followed the path along the perimeter of camp, and Johan looked through the fence thoughtfully as he walked. Through the two fences, Johan could see people in striped clothing working on the construction of barracks in which they would soon be living. He took note of the fact that these striped, un that these striped uniforms were similar to those in Sachsenhausen and bore the same insignia, a colored triangle worn on the left with a prisoner's IDN above it. 
also noticed that some prisoners who were he also noticed some prisoners who were not in convict clothing, but they didn't seem to be guards either. On occasion, Johann could hear someone cry out in anger or in pain, but he could seldom pinpoint the person who did so. They rounded the corner of the camp to find that the street had buildings on each side of it. As they walked, Hoas pointed out to them the crematorium on their left and the SS hospital on the right. The crematorium was not fully operational at that point, and it sat idly in its small field, harmless as a bread factory. Past the crematorium was the Gestapo office, where the Gestapo officers were doing their work for the town of Asviasium. Across from the Gestapo office was the, was the first of two administrative buildings, and between the two admin buildings was a gateway into camp under a guard tower. Just after the administrative buildings and across the road from the, was their destination, the main guardhouse where the SS staff lived. The brick building was not particularly special. It looked just like the other brick buildings they'd passed in the administrative strip of the Lagerstrasse, excepting the crematorium. It was two stories, with lots of windows, but it was unexceptional otherwise. And these are your living quarters, Post said as they came to a stop before the wooden door. You can just pick a free bed in whichever room you want. Pick your roommates wisely. Johan glanced at his comrades when they spoke quietly amongst themselves, but his thoughts were miles away. He wasn't keen on being stuck in a room with five other people he didn't know, but whom he might end up, but he knew might end up hating him. He'd rather live anywhere else. Johan would have rather picked a prisoner's barrack and slept with the prisoners than lived in a room full of untrustworthy SS whom he'd be dealing with at any time he wasn't working. That abruptly reminded him of the prisoner that, he, that had joined him in his travels. He had no idea what had become of him. Johan turned to speak, but, Ho but Hoas started speaking as well at the same time. I heard you brought a prisoner with you, Hoas said calmly, looking at Johan. He'll be registered in camp, and you can collect him at Appel in the morning. Johan responded with a curt nod, hiding his surprise that Johan that Hoas had answered the question before it was asked. Yes, sir. Hoas then addressed the entire group once more. I will leave you here. Get settled, and you can start working tomorrow. They all spoke at once. Yes, sir. Hoas nodded, offering a casual wave as he turned to leave the newcomers on their own. The others filed into the guardhouse, and Johan followed quietly. One of the group, a blonde kid with, with gray eyes, turned to Johan, though with curiosity instead of the hostility that Johan had expected. Sorry, we didn't realize you were on the train. We didn't mean to ignore you. Johan tilted his head slightly, though he made a dismissive gesture with his head. It's all right. The kid smiled at Johan's lack of anger. I'm Conrad Winkler. What did you say, what he keep saying your name was? Johan was baffled by the kindness, almost innocence, in Winkler's voice. Uh, Johan Kremer, it's nice to officially meet you. Since he wasn't getting a dismissive response from Johan, Winkler turned to his compatriots, all of whom had stopped walking to let him talk. He motioned to each in turn. And these guys are Lois Fischer, Eric Wolf, Franz Kruger, Henry Huber, and Otto Baum. Johan turned, nodded to each in turn, though he was somewhat uncomfortable about their attention. Winkler looked to his friends. This is Johan Kremer. The others nodded, and Johan received a few hellos from the group. The red-headed fisher offered a handshake to the still-confused doctor. Hello, Dr. Kremer. We were a bit surprised when we saw you on the train before we disembarked. Johan chuckled quietly as he accepted the handshake. I'm sure I was pretty quiet all day. Kruger, a black-haired, blue-eyed man of similar age to Johan, actually laughed at that, voice sounding much raspier and, oldier, and older than he appeared. That's an understatement. You didn't say a word all day. The doctor responded with a slightly nervous chuckle. I'm a quiet person. My apologies. Bomb, a brunette kid that seemed more outspoken than the others, piped up at that. Don't be sorry about it. It's funny, actually. Wolf, a man of about forty, with hair that seemed almost mousy brown, nodded in agreement without speaking, giving Winkler the chance to speak once more. 
Hey, if there's an empty room, we should all bunk together. The idea was met with quick nods of approval and surprised laughs at the sudden exclamation. That's a good idea, Bomb declared, voice raised to be heard. And he looked to Johan when everyone seemed to agree with him. You in, Grimmer? Johan blinked a few times, unsure. He knew that he would be in a difficult position if something happened, but at the same time, they might become useful allies if the SS started spreading more rumors. After a short pause, Johan nodded. Yes, if there's room for me, I'd be happy to join you. Winkler grinned in excitement. Cool, let's go find a room. Wait, Huber spoke for the first time. There are seven of us and six beds. I'll find another room, Kruger responded. If that's what you want to do, Winkler said in confusion. Johan spoke quietly but authoritatively. I, I can find my own room. I'm the outsider here after all. No, it's okay, really, Kruger insisted, taking a small step back and putting his hands up in a gesture that was almost submissive. I prefer rooming alone anyways, but I'll see you all later. Johan wondered if Kruger might have heard something about him, but decided it was better not to ask, and instead just nodded placatingly. The group continued to walk at that, and Johan followed them quietly, looking around at the plain hallway into which they had entered. Winkler dropped rank to walk beside Johan. Where are you from, Kremer? Johan glanced at him, at him questioningly. Do you mean in general, or right before my transfer? Winkler smiled, though he seemed unsure as he spoke. Before you came here. Johan nodded in understanding as he answered. At Sachsenhausen, I was a guard there. The blonde kid nodded in return, calm. Are you a guard here as well? He received a head shake and a wry smile in response. No, I'm a physician here. I can't say I'm complaining. Sitting overnight in a guard tower wasn't particularly fun. Winkler snorted a laugh and looked away. I guess not. This is my first camp. Do you have any advice for me? Johan glanced at him in surprise, then paused to think about what to say. The warning he would give himself weren't exactly what Winkler was looking for. Uh, remember your training. It's easier to avoid thinking of prisoners as people. Perhaps it was Johan's imagination, but he thought he saw a flicker of a grimace in Winkler's expression. That makes sense, I guess. Also, don't miss your rations, or you won't have any energy. They had me sit in a tower for two hours at a time, and it would be pretty miserable if I didn't eat right before my wash. I'm sure it's worse if you're on the ground, walking. Winkler chuckled, though there wasn't much, as much genuine humor in his eyes anymore. Thanks, I'll remember that. Johan tilted his head, noticing the shift in Winkler's emotions, but he decided not to mention it. You'll do fine, I'm sure. From the front of the group, Wolf spoke. There's an empty room here, lovebirds. Johan and Winkler both turned to stare at him, trying to figure out what he had called them lovebirds for, but it was Winkler who responded. Let's commandeer it then. The group shuffled into the room, looking around as they picked their beds. The room consisted of two groups of three bunks, complete with sheets and pillows, but there wasn't much, too much else there. Johan dumped, dumped his rucksack onto the bottom bunk on the left, relieved to be free of its weight and then looked around their room to see where everyone else was going to be sleeping, so that he knew for future reference. It's roomier than my old room in Dachau, Huber commented, voice calm and even. Johann nodded in agreement, since there was more space than his room at Sachsenhausen. With that being said, Johann stepped back from his own bed. I'll be back, Johann said quietly. I'm gonna go see the rest of camp. Four of his roommates, four of his roommates waved him off dismissively, but Winkler dropped from his bunk above Johan. Mind if I join you? Johan tilted his head, not used to anyone within the SS being so friendly with him. If you want to, then you can. Winkler nodded in affirmation, so Johan stepped toward the door. We'll be back. Have fun, was Huber's response from across the room. Johan and his new compatriot went back outside staying quiet until they made it through the oaken door back to the Lagerstrasse. Hey, just out of curiosity, Winkler said softly as they walked down the asphalt toward the mid toward the main admin offices, between which was a gate into the camp. You brought a prisoner from Sachsenhausen. 
Johan tensed slightly, glancing at Winkler sidelong. What about it? The blondes didn't meet Johan's gaze as he focused on where they were going. I was just curious why. Johan shrugged, making himself relax a little bit. He caused problems at Zoxenhausen, so he was sent with me to be used for a medical experiment as punishment. The doctor wa watched Winkler's expression and knew for certain that he didn't misunderstand the unease in his eyes. I suppose that serves him right for causing problems. Johan paused in walking. You don't believe that. Winkler stopped when Johan did, but glanced down the path longingly. Yes, I do. Johan tilted his head. I'm not sure I do, but I don't think it matters either way. That's just how it has to be. He resumed walking before Winkler could absorb the implications of his statement. Anyways, he's lucky. I was supposed to shoot him at Zoxenhausen. Winkler followed quickly. Why didn't you? Johan looked to his comrade. I was on the night watch gar guarding the perimeter. There was a strip of gravel we called the neutral zone, and I was tasked with shooting any prisoners that stepped onto it. He was out at night and he shouldn't have been, but he didn't step on the gravel, so I just sent him back. I just sent him back to his barracks. He tried to kill himself later on. That's what prompted his transfer. The young guard nodded in understanding, and then he fell silent. The two guards padded through the gate into the main camp, which wasn't fully built yet at that point. The concrete foundations for buildings were already laid out, but the buildings for the first three rows didn't exist. Beyond that, there were prisoners in striped burlap clothing, working feverishly to erect barracks for themselves under the guard of both SS men and civilian helpers. As Johann and Winkler approached the construction, they got a good view of what was happening. The prisoners were, build were busily built. The prisoners were busily putting bricks together and clearing debris, while the civilians shouted at them to work faster, and the SS threatened them with lashes from their whips. Johan felt a renewed hatred for the SS as he watched in passing, and he got the impression that Winkler felt similarly. They paused briefly on the road to watch them, and Johan saw a few prisoners glance over at them, seeming expectant, as though they thought Johan and Winkler might have started shouting at them as well. They received angry reprimands for pausing, and quickly focused back on their work again. Johan glanced at Winkler, only just managing to hide his fury that this was happening and he could do nothing about it. Winkler was focused on a buzzard circling in the sky, not watching. Johan suspected that was purposeful. They continued on in zomber silence, toward the corner of the camp, and Johan noticed when they reached the end of the road, in the corner, that the two barracks to their right were barracks 10 and 13, the medical barracks and the prison barracks. Can we go in 10 for a moment? I want to look around. Winkler glanced at Johan. You're leading the tour, so you don't have to ask. Johan suspected he was trying to be humorous, but he sounded more forlorn than anything. In any event, Johan nodded and, pa and paced toward the brick, the brick wall and the archway that led into the two buildings. Johan then made a beeline toward the door that led into Block 10, where he would be working. They stepped into a well-lit hallway, with a stairway which went both upwards to the second floor and downward to what Johan assumed would be the basement. Naturally drawn to the darkest locations first, Johan led his anxious comrade into the concrete stairwell and began their descent. We'll start in the basement and work our way up, Johan decided as they padded down the steps. It's best to get the worst over first, anyways. Winkler merely nodded, but he seemed wary even so. The stairway opened into a corridor, with doors spaced ten feet apart down its length. The concrete floor amplified the soft whistling of the air conditioner and the quiet voices that came from one of the rooms. Johan silently followed the dimly lit hall toward the voices. As he passed the first set of doors, he noticed the, bar window, the barred window at eye level, revealing that the room was only about six feet by six feet and empty. There was nothing inside except for a small latrine. These must be the holding cells for prisoners used for experiments, Johan thought as he continued down the hall. Hardly possible to keep anyone healthy when they have to sleep on the concrete floor in the basement, I suppose. They reached the cell from which Johan had heard voices, and he peered in to see that two prisoners were huddled in the corner. When Johan stepped into view, their gazes snapped to him, and then they jumped to their feet 
posture perfect but keeping their eyes on the ground. Johan tilted his head, looking the two captives over. They didn't look injured, but Johan knew that that didn't mean they weren't miserable. At ease, Johan said quietly, feeling uncomfortable with them standing at such respectful attention. I'm just looking. Both prisoners relaxed slightly, flicking their eyes up to Johan briefly. Winkler joined them at the window curiously, prompting some more definite unease from the prisoners' expressions. Johan started to take a step back in preparation to continue down the hall, but he was stopped when one of the prisoners quickly stepped forward, a note of desperation in his body language. Per permission to speak, sir? The doctor flicked a glance at his comrade, who seemed distinctly alarmed by the two prisoners, and then he looked back at the prisoner and nodded. Granted. Can we have water, sir? The prisoner, which Johan had started to realize was quite young, seemed anxious as he continued. We, we haven't been given water in three days, sir. We will die of thirst. That isn't my call, Johan said, trying to sound dismissive when he felt like his heart was aching. You'd do better to ask your doctor. The prisoner looked sincerely frightened by that proposal, but he knew better than to argue, and stepped back. Yes, sir. Just then, Johan heard heavy footsteps further down the hall, and turned to see a doctor about his height but with blonde hair and more pronounced features. The doctor looked as though he already knew what was going on. Johan suspected that sound carried better than he'd expected it to, and the doctor had overheard. Dr. Abvar was, was reassigned a few days ago and didn't release them. The doctor came to a stop beside Johan, looking in at the prisoners. We'd do well to just give them some water and let them go. I don't think he even started his experiment. Johan nodded as the doctor produced a key from his pocket and unlocked the deadbolt on the cell. Both prisoners backed away, seeming more anxious than they were when they had a barrier between the SS and themselves, but, and Johan couldn't say he blamed them. Winkler stood aside so they had room, quieter than Johan had seen him before. With the door open, the doctor motioned the two, captions, the two captives out of the cell. Out you get. They followed the order in tense silence, and Johan looked to Winkler, muttering quietly. I think he has his handled, so we can continue on our way now. Winkler nodded, and both SS guards left the doctor to escort the prisoners out of the building. The hallway ended in a turn, down which there were more prison cells. Johan determined that there were three corridors that ran the length of the, bar of the barracks, then, two at then the two at the ends of the building. For the most part, the only rooms in the basement were holding cells, so Johan then went back to the ground floor. This building seems gloomy, Winkler commented as they ascended the steps. What is this block for? It's the medical experimentation block, Johan answered calmly. I was posted here. Winkler didn't outwardly respond to that news, but Johan could almost sense him coming to terms with it. Don't worry, Johan said quietly as they reached the ground floor. It doesn't affect you very much. Winkler must have noticed the bitter undertone to Johan's voice because he paused in the doorway. No need to sound so excited about that. Johan looked at him, brown furrowed in silent question. Winkler just shook his head, seeming bemused by Johan's demeanor. He assumed that Winkler had probably never met anyone quite like Johan, and it would follow that the guard must not have known exactly what to think of his older comrade. After an uncomfortably long pause, Johan stepped out into the hallway at ground level and began to walk. The hall they were posted on had four doors on each side, and all of them appeared to be offices. Johan assumed that they were on the administrative floor of the building, which made enough sense to Johan since they would have been easiest to access on the ground floor. There were two meeting, me meeting rooms on that level as well. Once they had explored the office floor, Johan went up to the second story, lost in thought. He imagined he would be spending a lot of time in this building and he was determined to learn where everything was as quickly as possible. They stepped out into the hall on the second story, and Johan knew immediately that this is the floor where the examination rooms were located. That gave Johan a specific destination to look for, exam room C4, where he would meet his mentor the next morning. They walked down the hall, and it took Johan virtually no time to spot the exam room. It was only two doors down on the first hall, on the right. As he paused to look into the small white room, he noticed the name on the door. 
Dr. Hudson Regler. That must be my mentor, then, Johan thought as he peered through the small rectangular window. The room didn't have too many furnishings. There was an exam room in the, there was an exam table in the middle, and a counter along the opposite wall with sets of drawer, of drawers underneath it. And a sink was built in. In the back corner was a standing scale to measure height and weight. Johan couldn't see the rest of the room, but he didn't think that there was much else there. They continued down the hall, but all the rooms looked exactly the same, so they finally went back to the ground level and outside once more. It's getting dark, Winkler pointed out as they stepped out of the block. We should probably go back to the room for the night. Johan looked up at the sky, only just then noticing that darkness had begun to fall. Yeah, I agree. Let's go back. The two guards started to make their way back to the SS barracks. So I've decided you don't want to be here, Johan announced finally, in a very matter-of-fact tone. Winkler looked genuinely startled for an instant, but quickly masked it by looking away. What makes you say that? The tension in your body language, the way you can't you can't watch the prisoners that were working on construction, the way you responded to the prisoners in the cell, and the way you got defensive when I brought it up. Winkler shrugged. It doesn't matter either way. I'm here. Johan nodded in understanding that he had been right. Don't worry, you'll get used to it. I felt the same way when I got to Zoxenhausen. I never came to like the cruelty like so many other guards, but I'm used to it now. Winkler glanced at Johan, surprised. You don't want to be here either? I won't say one way or the other. After all, if you say someone to, if you say to some to someone else that I don't like it here, I'll probably be dismissed. Likewise, if I told someone you don't like it here, you might be dismissed yourself. I won't say anything because I understand, but please return the favor. Yo, Winkler gave a short nod of understanding. Any advice now that we're on the same page? Johan didn't meet his gaze as he answered. Don't take this the wrong way, but get better at hiding your dislike for the place. Like I said, it's better to try to pretend they aren't people. That doesn't mean you have to hurt anyone, but you have to at least pretend like you aren't opposed to doing so. When I was training at Dachau, our group in fear saw me behave me civil behaving civilly with a prisoner, and they made me shoot him. It's easier to just stay out of that situation altogether. Johan expected Winkler to become defensive, but his comrade just nodded again. That makes sense. Thanks for the advice. The doctor nodded and fell silent. If I'm ever in a position to make your life easier, I'll be sure to help you. Winkler inclined his head, but didn't verbally answer, so Johan simply continued to walk. Back to their barracks in silence. He was looking forward to resting. After all, he knew that the next day would be long, and he would need the rest. 